Hello, welcome back to the European Waves podcast. It is November 15th, 2021, and I am here with two of my classmates, Greta and Beatrice, and I'll let them introduce themselves, but how about I ask, what is your drink of choice? Every time I go to get a drink at, like, say, Starbucks, it's always something very, very basic, but yeah, probably a caramel latte. I'm, I'm one of those girls. Also, hi, I'm Greta. <laughs> Hi, I'm Beatrice, and as I'm Italian, of course, I always go for cappuccino. Nice. Just outclassed me. (laughs) (laughs) I am also a cappuccino girl, but in the U.S., which I don't think I've ever had one here or seen it here in Starbucks, um, the pumpkin cream cold brew. Oh, my God. Have you heard of those? No. Okay, (laughs) well... We love them in the U.S. Um, and they come around in the fall time and it's perfect because it's cold coffee. But in Texas, it's not really cold in the fall. So it's like a nice refreshing drink. And that pumpkin cream at the top, mmm, delicious. <laughs> so today we are going to talk about all things gender inequality, but not really because we'd have you here four hours However, we will be having a discussion over institutional gender discrimination in Europe and what the EU has done to address gender discrimination in general, and we're going to evaluate how well they have worked using the case of Sweden. Specifically, (laughs) Greta's like making (laughs) hand signs. Greta, do you want to tell our listeners why you are so passionate about Sweden? Oh, gosh. Uh, I mean, I lived lived in Sweden for a year, and Swedes really love to say that they have achieved gender equality. And I like to say that that is not true. That being said, Sweden's good. It's a good country. Yeah, and I think this is a really great topic because um, the EU and a lot of its member states are often glorified for their great advances in terms of gender equality, which for sure... Yes, but also there's a lot of room for growth and hopefully we'll be able to have a good and nuanced discussion about it here. And a quick disclaimer before we start, obviously there's three women here and some of our male counterparts would have loved to be here, but unfortunately they could not. But we know that gender equality does not just concern women, it's also about incorporating men and parts of society that are often dominated by women. However, since we're mainly touching on discrimination, our conversation will revolve mostly around women because there's, like I said, a lot of work to be done. So, Beatrice is going to start us off. Thank you, Arya. I will talk about uh, institutional sexism. So, sexism is a systemic issue that permeates every sphere of our society. A broader understanding of sexism defines it as any form of behavior and expression that violate women's fundamental rights on the basis of the belief that women are inferior to men. But as this is such a wide and multifaceted issue, today I would like to bring into the discussion the notion of institutional sexism, which affects women primarily in the public sphere of their lives. Institutional sexism is indeed a form of gender-based discrimination embedded in the practices of organizations like governments, corporations, and public institutions. Thus, women suffer the negative impacts of sexist behaviors in a great variety of settings, including workplaces, school, academia, and even national parliaments. I think that this latter case uh, is particularly relevant for our discussion as research has shown that institutional sexism is even nowadays very much embedded in the framework of parliaments in Europe. The Interparliamentary Union, in collaboration with the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe, carried out insightful research on the matter by interviewing 123 female MPs and parliamentary staff from 45 of the 47 Council of Europe member states. The results were indeed quite worrisome. 
Amongst female MPs, 85.2% said that they had experienced psychological violence during their mandate. 46.9% had received threats of being beaten, raped or killed. And 67.9% answered that they were the targets of comments containing sexist or sexual remarks. Can I ask a question? Yeah. So these acts of discrimination or like threats, were they by other members of parliament? Exactly. I was going to touch on that. Yes, it was mostly by other MPs. And the very problematic aspect was that it was not only member of the parliament from opposite parties, which you could understand that they tried to attack conflicting parties, mm-hmm. but also from the members of the same party, which then creates a lot of problems because women, of course, want to be loyal to the party they have been elected in. And so they tend not to report the case of sexual harassment, for example, that they had to face. And indeed, one MP that was interviewed uh, reported, and I want to quote her words, to put an end to impunity, you must name the offenders, uh, even in parliament, but you don't want to expose people from your own party. You are an elected representative, depending on your voters, and it's above all a question of loyalty. Therefore, members of the parliament uh, who were interviewed uh, were often reluctant to report cases of harassment and violence occurring in parliament. And the low rate of reporting beside the question of loyalty was also based on the fact that there was either a lack of reporting services within the parliament or based on the problem that MPs were often uh, doubtful regarding the effectiveness uh, of the existing mechanisms. And therefore, that's why according to the Interparliamentary Union, uh, sexism and sexual harassment not only creates a hostile environment for women working in parliaments, but it also can cause a chilling effect to women entering or remaining in politics. And therefore, this form of discrimination often leads to psychological as well as physical suffering within the workplace. So women who experienced it often recall feeling humiliation, anger, disorientation, anxiety, insecurity, but they also experience health problems like sleep disorders or loss of appetite. And of course, then these can have a negative impact on the women's performance in the workplace and therefore on the working and on the effectiveness of the parliament as a whole. And therefore, just to conclude, I think that not only does institutional sexism disempower and silence women who work in parliament, but it also damages the image and the value of the parliament as the core institution of democracy. So as you have just pointed out, this is clearly a huge problem and um, it's not something that just affects women that are working for the parliament or women that are working for any branch of the government. Really, it's women everywhere, right? We have women in corporate jobs, women not even just in corporate jobs, like you could go to a store on the street and it is very likely that within that sort of hierarchical structure of like manager and employees, there's some sort of discrimination and Many of us have experienced it. It's unfortunate. And thankfully, a lot of governments have tried to address it. And so I'm going to talk about what the EU has done about it. So 21 of EU member states are among the top 30 nations in the world when it comes to gender equality, which means that overall, there's a lot of really great rankings here. But in an interview, when asked if Europe could start congratulating itself for gender equality, the Belgian MEP, Asita Kanko, responded, I really hope we do not start congratulating ourselves because there's still a lot to be achieved. Then she compared it to a cake that isn't finished baking. When you scratch the surface or poke a hole and look inside, it's still undercooked. And in this case, there's still a lot of inequality beneath the surface. She goes on to mention that it's not just about women's presence in politics. 
but the actual tangible decision-making power that they have and also their life in politics. So what Beatrice just talked about, discrimination within their parliament. And as I was doing all of my research, I saw that there were three key things that kept popping up over and over and over again. Pay transparency, gender mainstreaming, and representation and leadership were, I guess, like the biggest areas of concern. And so just for those of you that don't know, gender mainstreaming is a reorganization, improvement and development and evaluation of policy processes so that a gender equality perspective is incorporated in all policies at all levels and at all stages by the actors normally involved in policymaking. And for example, I read a really interesting study done in Switzerland where they were looking at the effects of gender mainstreaming when it came to social transfer, so social benefits and tax policies. And quite interesting that they're starting to look at these things on a more micro level, which I guess is where the bigger and mm, I guess more long-term work will happen, if that makes sense. Another thing I found were a lot of agencies and commissions. There are tons, but the three main ones that I found were the European Institute for Gender Equality, AIGA, Commission for Gender Equality, and the European Union Agency for Fundamental Rights. And so the European Institute for Gender Equality was established in 2006 by the European Parliament and the Council of Europe, and AIGA collects, analyzes, and processes, and disseminates data and information on gender equality issues. And the Commission for Gender Equality was established to help ensure the mainstreaming of gender equality into all Council of Europe policies and to bridge the gap between commitments made at the international level and the reality of women in Europe. And then the European Agency for Fundamental Rights, also (laughs) their acronym is funny, it's FRA. (laughs) So they work together to instill a fundamental rights culture across the EU. And it was founded by the EU as an independent body in 2007, which all of these are early 2000s, but I think it's still kind of late for, um, I guess, the movement. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, so most of these do a lot of, I guess, policy consulting and do a lot of research and publish pamphlets. And according to AIGA, another thing that also we see in Europe is the implementation of quotas. So it's not unknown here. According to AIGA, the lowest scoring area in the index for the EU when it comes to gender equality is power and decision-making of women. So if there are women in power, that's one thing, but it's a different thing measuring how much power and decision-making they have within their positions. And that's the lowest ranking area. However, apparently this last year, there's been a huge increase in terms of power and decision-making, but this was only due to seven countries imposing new or more quotas for women in boardrooms and in government. They see quotas as a tangible way to achieve gender parity, and I know that we've talked about amongst ourselves and had conversations about how we feel about quotas, because while they put women into, or they encourage putting women into these positions of power, sometimes it's um, it leads to... A, feeling like maybe you only got a position because of this quote-unquote quota. (laughs) Um, I think it's just not a nice position to be in as a woman. And I heard a podcast with some MEP, I don't remember who it was, but they were talking about how they want to work on making this more natural. Right now, Ursula von der Leyen's gender equality strategy of 2020 through 2025 and some other strategies that are floating around, which, again, I saw a lot of agencies, a lot of strategies, and I just don't know how well they're being implemented. And so what Ursula is working on, it says that, you know, she addresses all the inequalities. You know, 33% of women have experienced physical or sexual violence and just in the workplace or by 
an intimate partner and harassment at the workplace and so i'm reading right now like the pamphlet that they have and so they're addressing these issues and they're talking about it and they say that these are going to be addressed by concrete actions including making sure that women and men receive equal pay and by tabling binding measures on pay transparency by the end of 2020 did this happen? I don't think so. Um, making EU rules on work-life balance for women and men in work practice. So again, there's a lot of talk, but what I got from a lot of my research is that yes, there's funding being allocated within the EU towards alleviating gender inequality. However, I thought it was a little idealistic and also the research that I saw was not the best. So I was happy that it was a topic of discussion, but also disappointed by the actual follow-through. Can you, can you go into that a bit more about how you think that the research wasn't the best? Yeah, so some of the data that I found, like even on the like the European Commission's website, the charts were just unfinished, not labeled right, difficult to read. Um, and in terms of research, a lot of academic work that I read was pretty, I don't know how to explain this, I guess not groundbreaking. So I saw a lot of authors that had hypotheses or hypotheses about the implementation of quotas in European parliaments and... Essentially, their hypothesis was implementing quotas is going to increase the number of women in parliament and it's going to help like minority women be in parliament, but not as much as majority women. (laughs) And I was like, okay, (laughs) Um, so expected. Yeah. If I can also ask a question, you mentioned the fact that uh, some goals were set for the end of 2020. And of course, in 2020, we had the pandemic. And so I feel that perhaps the agenda that sees mm, gender equality as one of the main uh, um, goals to achieve for the European Union may have fallen back a little because of the pandemic management. Um, But actually, one of the main problems was uh, that uh, discrimination against women, violence against women actually increased during the pandemic. Uh, And so, I don't know, in your research, did you find any reference to um, violations of women's rights during the pandemic? Yes, actually, there was a lot of discussion over COVID-19 and the negative effects it had on women, specifically when it came to domestic violence and, I guess, unemployment. And so, from a lot of the pamphlets and like publications I saw again like on EU agency websites it's like COVID-19 and we're gonna have a seminar over like how we can address these problems and we're definitely going to incorporate it into our policies and this this, isn't that did I again was there follow-through was there anything more substantive I I didn't really see it again that could have just been my research my perception the fact that maybe I haven't dedicated you know months and months to look at this and like really look at the policies but even still like I read some of the papers that the European Commission like put out whenever they had their you know I don't know what those are called actually charters I mean I don't know oh sure okay something like that but I read some of those and again like I was just idealistic in my opinion I don't know yeah I mean I feel like it shouldn't take months of research to find out how policy on gender equality were implemented by the EU right right I also found like when I was researching Sweden that a lot of the they had a little kind of page about how gender equality has been implemented in Sweden and a, it was really simplified to the sense that it didn't make sense anymore, because I guess they want to make it accessible to everyone. But one thing they said was like, oh, Sweden has lagged behind in the domain of gender equality of knowledge. And I just thought, what does that even mean? And they never went on to explain what equality of knowledge is. So I, I agree. I think, right? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's a little disappointing, especially what I saw from academic research really... I keep saying it, but there's room for improvement for sure. Um, 
And so I guess right now, Greta, would you like to enlighten us with your case study of Sweden? So I wanted to take a moment to see how institutional policies can affect women in one country. And what better place than Europe's feminist utopia? So Sweden ranks first in the EU on the Gender Equality Index. Sweden's government is a self-proclaimed feminist government, and the country has several laws against gender discrimination. I think that Sweden has done a really good job at portraying an image of gender equal society, but perhaps Sweden confuses being highly ranked in gender equality with being gender equal. To consider the real-life impact of institutional action on Swedish society, I will focus on parental leave policy. Traditionally, gender equality policy in Sweden has been centred around the ambition of achieving a dual earner family model, shaped by a division of labour based on equality, whereby men and women share domestic housework equally. The issue with unequal domestic responsibilities is that it prevents women from entering the workplace. Effectively, when women enter the workplace, they complete two shifts of work, paid and unpaid domestic work. This especially affects women who cannot always afford to outsource domestic work, so working class women. In 1974, therefore, maternity leave was replaced with parental leave to encourage men to take part of the responsibility for child rearing. However, by 1990, only 7% of the parental leave days were taken by men. Women had joined men in the labour market, but men hadn't joined women in completing domestic work. Sweden therefore decided to earmark so-called daddy months. I'm sorry, what did they call them? Daddy months? (laughs) I I believe, (laughs) I believe in Sweden, that's papa monada. Ah, okay, like a translation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. (laughs) Who thought that was a good idea? (laughs) Okay, let's move on. 90 days are earmarked for each parent. The remaining 300 days can be divided between the parents as they choose. This policy aims not only to relieve women of taking full domestic responsibility for domestic labour, thus allowing them to enter the labour market, but also to help normalise the role of men in child rearing. So this has partly been successful. Nordic fathers take more parental leave than the rest of the world, although this is still only 30% of the total parental leave offered in Sweden. Additionally, there's the question of whether men and women do the same domestic work, and I think people are going to enjoy this. So in Sweden, we talk about latte papa, so latte dads so these are basically dads who are seen to be looking after their children in cafes and this has been heralded as a sign of gender equality in sweden Uh, if you want to hear a fun fact a lot of newspapers uh, call the dads who take care of their um, children mommy so like they make uh, male the name mama that is mom yeah that's that's real national newspapers do that in italy yep oh my goodness as if, like, taking care of the ch- child was only, um, oh. let's say, woman's job, and therefore a dad who does it, it's not papa, which is dad, mm-hmm. but it's a mammo. That's terrible. Oh. Oh yes. Oh, my God. Okay, well, I guess that, you kind of ruined my point now, because I was about to say latte papas is a bad thing, but that's way worse. I mean, um, no, but I, I'm curious. So they go to cafes and just take care of their kids there? Do they work? Well, it's kind of like they got all, the, all of the dads <laughs> group together and um, just, you know, have a coffee and talk about their babies. That's kind of the concept. And it is something you see in Sweden. But for me, I would argue that taking your child to a cafe is not the same as changing their nappies and cleaning the house. So I don't think that's a sign of gender equality that people like to present it as. Sorry, I have some follow-ups. First of all, honestly, I think it's cute. I'm not going to lie. It is cute. It is cute. So they go to cafes, but their children need to be changed. So I'm not understanding, like, is it just 
for an hour that they take their kids or what? Well, I mean, it, it really depends on the dad. I think just the point is that in Sweden, they have this perception that like, just because you see a dad with his child, it means he's like best dad ever. But yeah, like the child doesn't want to go to a cafe. <laughs> yeah, my best friend always says that we should stop rewarding men for doing things that should just be normal for them to do. Mm-hmm. And I never really got it. And I was like, yeah, no, but we have to like, we're moving in the right direction. She's like, no, we just have to stop rewarding them. And sounds harsh but honestly like i think she's right i think so too honestly so whilst earmarking daddy months has increased uh, father's use of parental leave women still take on the majority of housework and child rearing as anders body the swedish finance minister conceded i wish that we could instead have a gender equality debate where we got men in these households to take more responsibility i would also think it was very good but that discussion has now been going on in Sweden for 20, 30, 40, 50, maybe even 100 years without any major effects. Some of the reasons for this slightly mitigated effect are that parental leave doesn't change employers' expectations of men. Workplace culture and structure can hinder the equal take-up of parental leave by men because there are established norms that make men's leave-taking seem inappropriate. Moreover, because companies do not take for granted the fact that fathers might take leave, work remains structured in ways that make it impractical for men to take time off. Earmarking has also increased the class gap among working fathers, as those in lower income jobs can less afford to take a pay cut during parental leave. This would suggest that institutional changes still have to wait for society to catch up with them. And parental leave hasn't revolutionised the situation for women either. The idea of gender equality in Sweden is based on the white, heterosexual, working mother. Changes in the labour market have actually therefore had a run-on impact on class differences. Demands to improve the career opportunities of middle class women do not solve the everyday issues of working class women, and no concrete solutions have been proposed to tackle this. Sweden has introduced a system of hired domestic labour with the aim of increasing labour market participation of working class women. These services have increased gender equality marginally, but only because the number of employed in the formal domestic services sector has increased, not because women who buy these services have increased their employment. As it happens, when these services are used, men's participation in housework probably falls. The impact of this is clear. In the private sector, Swedish women struggle to get a look in. Every third woman and every tenth man in Sweden work part-time, and the second most common reason for a woman to work part-time is childcare. Domestic work thus remains a hindrance to working women. Additionally, only 36% of Swedish managers are women, although the share of women on the boards of the largest publicly listed companies has increased in recent years. It's also worth mentioning the different lots of women in different parts of Sweden. At the Forum 2000 conference this year, Swedish journalist Paulina Nerding explained that we have two societies in Western Europe. We have a European society which is increasingly marked by gender equality, and then we have these pockets, these parallel societies which are marked by a lack of equality. This phenomenon mostly concerns immigrant societies, which, she argues, are part of the majority culture. Importantly, Sweden is moving towards gender equality in almost all the criteria measured by the EU. The institutional arrangements are there. Swedish society may just need a few more pushes to fully achieve that. Yeah, I completely agree with what she said and what you said. Coming from the US, definitely the... I feel like (laughs) I start a lot of statements coming from the US because, (laughs) I mean, definitely it feels like you live in a tunnel vision sometimes. Sweden and Nordic countries when it comes to gender inequality and also like healthcare and the welfare state in general, we do see them as very utopic. And hearing that there is still work to be done there is in a lot of ways good for us to start having important discussions of like, okay, where did they go wrong and how can we maybe apply that somewhere else? Does that make sense? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, one initiative I actually really like that they've introduced in Sweden is called um, Kilmida which is yeah, has now become a global initiative called Global Guy Talk. And the concept is to encourage men to communicate with each other on taboo topics, which with the aim of kind of giving men the chance to contribute to an equal society by starting with themselves. 
And I think that's really interesting because a lot of the time, yeah, we do talk about quotas and we talk about getting women into the workplace, but we don't actually talk about what men themselves can do. I like that. Yeah, and I don't know. I think it was in the e- the sorry the UN that Emma Watson gave a speech when they or actually I think she launched the He for She initiative. Yeah, she did. I just read about it briefly, but I did think it was. It's a step into the right direction. In recommendations uh, put forward by the Council of Europe that I read about promoting gender equality and combating sexism, an important part is given to involving men in the discussion and also developing uh, training programs uh, and uh, education programs where uh, gender equality, tolerance, respect... uh, are uh, stressed, highlighted, made it more central. Uh, But at the same time, there is often a lack of insight on how this should be done. Like, how do we involve men in the discussion about women? Uh, And I don't know if you guys have any idea of, like, what could attract men to participate into the discussion more. I mean, I definitely think that this has become a very nuanced discussion if you will because there is a lot of diversity in the world like not everyone identifies as man and woman now and so I think that adds another facet to this conversation of I guess identities that are left out and I'm not really sure if there is a perfect like policy that can help address all of this I think it's very structural like it goes back to education it goes back to having both parents in the household giving both of them the opportunity to enjoy their children and really reshaping these gender constructs that we have so rigidly in our heads actually in in college I had the opportunity to write an op-ed for a class and I called it gender equality starts in your home Uh I used to teach little kids to swim and the little the the smaller ones like the three-year-olds I were a little bit more nervous I would always have to distract them like oh we're going on an adventure ready go and then let's go in the water like put your face in (laughs) and I would always ask you know do you want to be a pirate or a shark today do you want to be a princess or a fairy and I myself was asking these based on gender because normally it's what I expected to hear and actually at one point I had a mom like critique the girl wanted to be like a dragon and she was like no that's too aggressive for you honey let's be something else and so then after that for me it just made me want to only suggest things that were within the normal gender i guess preferences for them i'm not sure how to explain that like the yeah 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 anyways one day i had a boy go and i asked him do you want to be a truck or a pirate and he said i want to be a truck we went on the swim turn came back then the girl Alyssa, was like i well i asked her Alyssa, what do you want to be? Do you want to be a princess or a fairy? And she said, I want to be a truck. (laughs) And I was like, yeah, you do. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. And I saw how I myself was perpetuating gender roles and how this permeates. You grow up thinking that things are very structured, that, that you only have room to move in this lane, that this is your lane. And it makes it difficult for you to change the mindset that you've grown up in. And I think this applies again in your home. If you see mom doing all domestic work and dad never washing one dish, and probably not his fault because that's how he was raised, right? And so it takes a long time to start deconstructing all of this. And I don't know, I think it starts with all of us, right? <laughs> Actually, I wanted to thank you for bringing this up because uh, when I introduced the concept of uh, sexism and gender inequality, I talked about the belief that uh, women are inferior to men, but actually gender is uh, much 
broader than that. It's not simply the distinction of men and women, but I like to think of it as a spectrum. But for my experience in Italy, there there is a lot of um, opposition and criticism uh, with regards to this idea and um, several political parties refer to it as the gender ideology that wants to corrupt our children by being introduced in education. And uh, I saw a lot of uh, posts on Facebook once where parents were showing the books that their children were using in school or kindergarten, now I cannot remember, um, where they were learning about jobs. And you could really see uh, how the stereotypes are ingrained in early childhood by seeing, I don't know, the chef as um, a male and then the waitress as a woman. Uh, the doctor was a man and the nurse was, again, a woman. And there was actually an attempt in Italy to overcome this through a legislative proposal that was, on one hand, uh, extending the prohibition of hate speech, uh, also with regards of uh, women and LGBT community and um, people with disabilities, but was also trying to introduce the concept of uh, gender and of sexual orientation in education by establishing, I don't know, specific uh, days and projects and just encouraging the school to be open within this discussion. And this uh, legislative proposal was turned down in a parliament, so it's not going to happen. It's probably going to take several years for something similar to be discussed again. And that was extremely disappointing because I feel like in Italy, gender stereotypes are still... um, there are still important. I see it in families, I see it in school uh, or in the workplace. Uh, We gave up on an amazing possibility and yeah, I think that even just discussing it today is is important. I, I really agree and I'm also someone that's always believed that you know yeah feminism starts in the home the personal is political and for me I find that even when people make sexist jokes which you know are just a joke it's it's still perpetual it's still reminding you of these stereotypes and it's you know it's extremely uncomfortable I think and the one thing just to bring it back to to my gal Taylor Swift um she has just released the re-recorded version of her album Red one thing that she often talks about is that as as a woman you are not thanked for having opinions in one of her recent uh songs she sings no one likes a mad woman and i think that's so true and i think even the way that we just talk like the way women are taught to speak you know that affects how we feel and how comfortable we feel and the fact that we're three three women and we've also got daria on the podcast as well although not today um doing this podcast and like feeling comfortable to express our opinions i think is great because women are not taught that it's okay for us to do that and i think it's the same with taylor swift because when she said that she was going to re-record her albums because of various different reasons which i won't go into now different newspapers responded to that quite negatively but when kanye west said he was going to do the same thing everyone applauded him and so i think as as women we're constantly being told that it's not okay for us to speak out and you know one thing that to go back to the global guy talk thing is to encourage men also to talk about things that women are taught to talk about just kind of bridge the gap between the subjects that men and women are allowed to discuss to that note i would also like to mention one of the things that female parliamentarian reported in the interview that I talked about at the beginning of this podcast. She said that once one of her colleagues, one of her fellow MPs said to her, stop being hysterical, go back home uh, and satisfy your sexual needs. So 
unfortunately, the we jaws don't, in this room just <gasps> dropped. <laughs> we don't know uh, in which parliament this happened because um, the research kept uh, the anonymity of the um, women interviewed. But we know that it happened in Europe in a parliament, and this person was a member of the parliament representing the people that voted for her. She was doing her job. She was probably being assertive, we would say, if she were a man, but she was described as hysterical. And yeah, this shows us as that if this happens in the parliament, in our democracy, then we really have a lot of work to do. Well, thank you both for this wonderful discussion. I have a lot to go home and think about. Truly, we literally just spent 40 minutes to an hour talking about institutional discrimination. Clearly, we're seeing that this is something that has to be worked on in all levels. I'm going to really go home thinking about how do we follow through, right? Because I say I have a problem with the lack of follow through that I'm seeing in the research that I that I did or in the policies that the EU, I guess, tried to implement. Which actually, sorry, really quick side note before I end things. I did want to tell you guys that part of uh, the strategy for gender equality for the commission, they're trying to bring back something that they had proposed in 2012. Oh, wow. But just never like, made it through, yeah. which is insane, insane. So again, I think that's what really confirmed this again, this lack of follow through. So I don't know, maybe we will have more discussions on it, but hopefully this will also be something that the people that are listening can think about maybe we will be the next generation that has more conversations on how to follow through and make this a better world for everyone yeah and i'm, I'm sad there was so much stuff i prepared to talk about and we just don't have time because there's so much to talk about yeah thank you guys very much for listening thank you thank you see you next time